Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. Welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm your host, Jeanette Linfoot, and I am here today with Michael Goldstrom, who is the founder and CEO of Get, Made, Get Motivated Buddies. I nearly said it wrong straight away there, Michael, it's but legal. Get Motivated Buddies. <laughs> nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me profusely. <laughs> well, Michael, Actually, pro thank you profusely for having me. That's much I better. Perfect. Perfect. Well, listen, I am very pleased that you're here because we were just talking how we've got a bit of a time difference between us because I'm in the UK and you are all the way over in LA. So it's early morning for you, isn't it? Yes, it's a little um, not aligned with how I typically operate, but I'm all for it. And I, that actually said most people in L.A. are up at this hour, you know, doing Pilates and stuff. But uh, that's not me because I moved here from New York. So, you know, bear with me if I start speaking in different languages. No, that's absolutely fine. I'm sure I'm going to keep keep you motivated as as is yes. the name of your business. Thank <laughs> you. That's exactly how it's supposed to work. This is exactly a great representation. This is it. All right. Yes, please go on. <laughs> Excellent. So we're going to talk all about, well, your journey, really, Michael, you know, from acting to narrating to being an entrepreneur and all of the good things that you've got going on. But what would be great is if you don't mind, just maybe giving us a quick canter through where life started for you, where you are today, and then we're just going to go from there. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'm originally from the Bay Area, San Francisco. I'm a proud Californian. I, I found that I actually really love this state and I love the Bay Area because it, it just has absolutely wonderful weather. Uh, it's got a diverse population or that's anyway, when I grew up, I grew up in a very diverse environment in, uh, in Oakland, Berkeley and San Francisco. Uh, and then we moved to Dallas, Texas, which was the antithesis of a diverse population. Um, and uh, my parents were art dealers. They sold contemporary art. Uh, and strangely, we moved to Dallas, which, as you may or may not know, is not known as the Center for Contemporary Art. <laughs> and so uh, one of the, my favorite stories from that time is my parents told me the story of this woman who came into their gallery. And she said, oh, I just love contemporary art. And my father said, oh, really? Well, who's your favorite artist? And she goes, oh, well, Monet. <laughs> it's like, okay, he's been dead for a hundred years, but look, if that's contemporary for you, and that is generally contemporary for a lot of people in Texas. Um, and then I, that's where I started acting in Dallas. And I met a casting director there and a manager. And they said, when you come to New York, call me. And I stayed in touch with this guy for two years from ages 10. I started as a child. Uh, so when I was 12, 13, I moved to New York by myself, um, signed with him as a manager. He turned out to be Halle Berry's manager and went to school there. My parents moved soon after and opened a gallery there. And then uh, I started as a child actor and was doing a television pilot and uh, you know other stuff. But it was in high school there that uh, I had a teacher who had gone to the Juilliard School, which was incredible to have a Juilliard trained teacher in high school. And Juilliard is a conservatory for music, acting and dance. Um, it's mainly known for music, but acting. I mean, you have all these incredible people who went there like Robin Williams and uh, Kevin Klein and uh and now Oscar Isaac, Jessica Chastain, you know, all these wonderful people. Wow. And so she was teaching me in high school, which is insane. And so the problem with that is she, she, you know, gave a very high standard for what we would do in high school. But I decided that I wanted to uh, continue with a more liberal arts education because I enjoyed a lot of the information I was doing. So I went to Columbia University where I studied psychology and art history and then I would do theater in the summers. And um, it was actually, it, was it in college? No, actually, it was in my senior year of high school. I don't know how or why my parents let me do this, but I flew to the UK, to London, 
for uh, Easter break. And I went to the, the National Theater and I saw the production of, um, uh, oh my God, uh, Tony Kushner, Angels in America, which is one of the most famous plays of the 20, late 20th century. He won the Pulitzer Prize for it, all that. But this is before it opened in the United States. And Angels in America is just this extraordinary, uh, uh, epic uh, set of stories about being gay in America, um, the American condition, politics, you know, all this really incredible stuff. And Declan Donlan is this phenomenal director in England, and he did the production at the National Theater. And that, I don't want to say it changed my life, but it definitely altered the direction and pushed me. I, I finally fully understood the power of the theater. It was, it was that production. I stepped out of the National Theater and I walked to the Thames because it's right there, you know, on the river. And I felt everything. I felt the, the fog. I felt the air. I mean, I feel it now. And I understood then that that was the power of the theater. And I went, okay, this is what I want to do. That said, I went to Columbia and did psychology and art history, but I was doing the theater in the summers. Um, and that's where I started to get exposed to more of the Juilliard teachers. And I went, okay, I, I want to go here. That said, uh, and I think this is a great part of the journey uh, in, because it relates to the entrepreneurial journey and any kind of journey, which is I auditioned for Juilliard while I was still in college um, in my junior year, and I didn't get in. And I knew many of some of the teachers there. Um, and I was disappointed, but I would have had to drop out of college to complete it. I auditioned my senior year of uh, college. I didn't get in. And again, I was disappointed. I still knew the people there. Uh, and so then I ended up going to London for the year. And I trained at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art and the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Uh, and that's where I had the ability to then immerse myself in a culture that truly values the theater and the diversity of the theater, different playwrights, different genres, different periods. This is very unlike the United States. The United States back then, a little bit more so now, but certainly back then, um, it has a much narrow, narrower experience of the theater. Uh, it caters to a very a narrower audience, possibly as well. And so um, that said, that experience of being in that conservatory environment made me go, okay, this is what I want. And I decided to apply for Juilliard again. So the third time I flew from London to audition to, to New York for a weekend. And this time I got in and, uh, you know, I mentioned that because, you know, sometimes people are uncomfortable saying those kinds of things because it mm -hmm. feels like, Oh, you know, you're not worthy or whatever. Um, but it is an important part of the journey and the experience. Um, I found out there were some reasons I wasn't accepted the first two times. Somebody didn't like my voice you know, back then, which was, you know, also fine, but there may have been other reasons, you know, maybe I wasn't ready or maybe whatever. All of that said, it worked out absolutely stunningly for me because I had a class really Juilliard works where you, it's all class-based not, not socially classes, but you, you go in by groups and the people that I had in my class were just unbelievable. I got, I got so lucky and that is not true for everyone. Like classes have different, you know, energies and vibes and, and relationships. And my group was incredibly diverse. Everybody was so unique, um, not only ethnically diverse, but just in terms of who they were, just very different kinds of people. And it created this very unique energy um, and, and we really enjoyed each other's presence. And as a result of that, the work we did, uh, in my opinion, was just unique, uh, irreplaceable, like that's something you can't get ever again, which is the reason I wanted to go there. I knew I would get experiences in that environment. I would not get anywhere else in life. And that is absolutely correct. Um, with those people and with those teachers. So, um, the reason why I mention all of this um, and I'll get to the ADHD in a second. The reason why I mention all of this and why it's so important is it is crucial to my decision to create this startup called Get Motivated Buddies because it is it, so much of it. In fact, probably 90% of it emerges from that experience of working with those people of a certain quality 
in a certain environment on certain things. And in a very generic sense, that's exactly what Get Motivated Buddies is. But that gave me the experience of what that is and how I, I strongly believe everyone should have the ability to have a version of that experience. And so that set the stage, no pun intended, uh, for that. Um, then just to bring the speed things up, my mother died uh, right after I got out of Juilliard. Um, my parents went through this very long divorce. Um, she took over the gallery in New York. My father went back to the Bay Area. And she was diagnosed with this brain tumor. Uh, right, I got out of school. The 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 Twin Towers fell. You know, I graduated. Twin Towers fell. I booked my first audition. Flew to Luxembourg. Did a film in the in World War One trenches because it was a World War One film. I come back. My mother's diagnosed with this brain tumor, and I then have to take over her art gallery um, because she was the only one running it. And so I'm I'm a new Juilliard grad, which is the golden moment. You know, you, you only have that golden aura for about, you know, a minute. <laughs> I got a very great agent. Um, and then, unfortunately, life took this other turn. And I was trying to do both, manage an art gallery. <laughs> and now I did study art history in college and I did grow up in an art gallery. So it was something I was comfortable with. But it's also I made the choice not to do that. I made the choice to become an actor. Right. Um, and this caused real struggle, you know. Um, and um, that really dictated those next two years of um, of trying to manage this gallery while she was recovering. And then she was also going back to work. She was a very dynamic woman, a salesperson. She was from Romania. She was she emigrated from Romania to the United States. Um, and um, and then and I was also still doing film and theater, also trying to manage the gallery It was a little nuts. And then, uh, yes, yeah, she died um, really out of the blue. She had this uh, aneurysm. And uh, while I was doing a show, um, <laughs> it was it was insane. She fell into a coma while I was uh, in rehearsal for this huge musical uh, that they were doing. Now, it just so happened the musical was rehearsing down the street from where she was in the hospital. And so I would rehearse. I stayed in it because the neurologist said, you may as well stay in it. There's nothing you can do. She's in a coma. So I would go in, I would be in the rehearsal and then I'd, in the morning I would go to the hospital. Then I would go to the rehearsal at lunch. I would go to the hospital and go back to the rehearsal. It was, there was something wrong about like, I, I either I should have dropped out or something. I don't, I don't understand. But I mean, when you're in that situation, you, you just kind of are acting in the larger sense. You're just taking actions. Um, so then she unfortunately she died uh, on the opening night of this thing, and um, uh, then came an, a, a year long process of just dealing with her affairs and managing all of that, and that kind of led to a state of, of burnout for me. It coincided with a point in my career where things were really starting to actually happen as an actor, and I was uh, in this Broadway show. They wrote the part for me. I mean, all this incredible stuff. And the, the show actually, of all the coincidences, was written by an art dealer who had produced films. And and this was his, uh, you know, uh, dream to, to do this particular Broadway musical based on a film that he had directed. So it was a weird confluence of worlds, you know. And I made the decision to drop out uh, and move to Los Angeles. And it was a very difficult decision. I mean, it was, it was, and it made absolutely no logical sense because everything logically is like, of course you're going to do this. this is everything you've been working for, which is a part written for you, you know, a prop, which like everything was coming together. People were calling, you know, all this stuff. And uh, it was my Dave Chappelle moment without, without the money and the glory, you know, which Dave Chappelle like left, you know. That's really funny. It's funny because around that time I had met Dave Chappelle at, at some event. So, um, wow, you know, all the stars were aligned um, or not aligned. So I moved to Los Angeles and um, I'm, look, the reason I'm going into all this detail is because I think it's actually quite relevant to um, the, the story of the, the entrepreneurial journey, because this is part of it. Um, it, it is 100 percent relevant, I think. So, and if, if you feel it's going off track, just let me know. But I, I really do feel this, this could help 
so I arrive in Los Angeles without a project. Most people, when they come from New York to Los Angeles as actors, they come with a project because yeah. LA is completely different from New York. And in New York, what happens is life happens to you. You wake up and you get a call, you get an email, you, you run into somebody on the street and everything just happens. Who you are, everything you've done comes with you. You walk into a room, they know who you are. It's a very small, it's an island, like literally. Yeah. And so, um, and, and it has that experience. It's very um, uh, confined in a way. And so that creates a lot of combustible energy, but it also creates a lot of frustration, you know, you know all, all that energy contained. It's like a prison. There's no coincidence that, you know, Escape from New York was made in 1977. This guy's trying to get out. There's probably some subconscious desire of the writer. He's like, I got to leave New York, you know, but I can't. And so um, Los Angeles is the antithesis of that. Los Angeles has these open vistas. There aren't all these tall buildings there, there, the, the design of the city doesn't give you a, a, a path of, of this is how you go. In other words, every day you wake up, you have to make the choice of what you're going to do that day. There is no, like, this is happening. It takes effort. It takes mindfulness. It takes will all of that frontal lobe energy of decision-making that's Los Angeles if you want to progress. And what you see in a place like LA or the kind of the history of LA, in, in particular in entertainment, now that's changing to tech, but um, in particular in entertainment, you've seen these two stories of somebody who comes to LA and becomes a big success, you know, a producer, an actor, a writer, and then the people who fall by the wayside. I don't know if you remember that film about the Juilliard violinist who um, played by Jamie Foxx, who became homeless because he had schizophrenia, right? Yeah. That, that's a great example of the kind of the journeys. Same thing with actors. You can be like drug addicts or stars or stars and drug addicts simultaneously. And you see that just so, I mean, it happens in New York too as well, but here it just appears more vivid. Um, and and e even in everyday life, like when you're walking down the street, on one side of the street, you have Whole Foods. And on the other side of the street, you have In-N-Out Burger. And every day you have to make the choice, like, which am I going to do? <laughs> now, this, this is where things came uh, full circle with my, my personality and my neurology, which is, it was around this time, of, a couple of years later, where I was diagnosed with ADHD. And, you know, I had been vaguely aware of it but didn't really believe it existed or what it was. Um, and ADHD is attention, hyperactivity, deficit disorder. And when a therapist I was seeing went through the checklist, I went, oh yeah, yeah, that, oh, that's me. Oh yeah, okay. And she suggested I try medication. I was very anti all kinds of medication. I was like, no, so I was trying doing meditation and swimming, just everything that one does. And around that time, there was even less research than there is now, but kind of things that you could or should do to manage it. And I also still never fully believed it really existed. And um, I then tried some medication, some Adderall, um, and it made a dramatic difference in the quality of my attention. I hesitate to use the word productivity, but it relates to productivity. Um, but one of the things, as you can tell by how long I've been talking right now, my hyperactivity manifests in verbal hyperactivity, you know, which is one reason I had difficulty understanding. Like, I'm not a person who's like running all over the place going like, look at me, what is going on? All this kind of <laughs> stuff. I mean, I can, but it's this verbal and as also mental. So the thoughts are just kind of going all the time. And that really began this ongoing journey, which, because that time coincided with this large movement on the internet of productivity and, you know, the four hour work week with Tim Ferriss. Um, I had been working with getting things done after my mother died. I was trying to manage all this paperwork and everything. So the getting things done system. So I just spent years figuring out how to deal with massive amounts of information, how to systematize it, because I, I got overwhelmed and couldn't handle it. And that coincided with the self-quantification movement um, uh, and inbox zero, all this kind of stuff. And I spent years 
doing all that, buying all the courses, doing all the books, everything, all the neuroscience books that were coming out, everything, and then also investigating the neuroscience behind what is going on neurologically. And then it reached a certain point where I'd been doing this the entire time. And I went, Jesus, if I just spent half the time doing what I actually want to be doing, rather than buying the books, doing the courses that I, some I finished, some I didn't, like if I just spent half the time actually doing it, it means I would have completed everything. And one of the main things I was doing was writing. Like I said, I moved to Los Angeles to uh, really write some projects. And one of my Juilliard classmates, we were writing together. He went on to write for Game of Thrones. He wrote for all the seasons for that. I was still acting as well, but I really struggled writing on my own, but writing with him as a partnership, uh, there were no problems. Like I hit all my marks and all of that. So at a certain point, I realized what is the difference? Why in some areas of my life do I, am I highly motivated and why in other areas do I really struggle with moving forward? And that really led to the seed of this startup, Get Motivated Buddies. So I'm going to take a moment because you've been very patient this whole time. Stop and, uh, you know, feel free to, uh, yeah, yeah, interrupt with anything. Perfect. Now, uh, well, listen, it's really great context, Michael, because there is a lot in there. And as you say, you know, when you're describing your early life with everything that you're juggling, not being aware of the ADHD really or having been diagnosed, I guess when you did get that diagnosis, it probably made a lot of sense, I, I assume. Oh, my goodness. It, well, no, you know what? There was a journey of the diagnosis to acceptance. Okay. Um, and mainly because ADHD, still a lot of people are like, is it real? What is it? It's now very clear that it is a neurological disorder where your frontal lobe, well, it, it's really, it relates to dopamine, which is the, you know, relates to the motivation reward system of the brain. And it just doesn't function like other people. And whether you're not getting enough in one way or another for through different mechanisms, either the reuptake or it's, you're not producing enough or it's not receiving, you know, the neurons aren't receiving enough. So your motivation is, is not reliable for certain things that you feel passionate about. So it's, it's in some ways it's connected to what your values are, things that you really are excited about that arouse you psychologically you are highly motivated for the dopamine flows for things that you don't have that feeling for there's nothing happening and it's very hard to focus and it's related to attention how does attention work it, it, by eliminating certain things so as a result with adhd you aren't able to eliminate information the filter doesn't work so for things that you're not excited about it's not that you can't focus on it is that there's too much else coming in and therefore you can't bring your attention to it. And so it's an overload of information and that leads to a real discomfort, both physical discomfort, like sound sights, like, you know, the, the typical ADHD thing is, Oh, look squirrel. It's because you notice a squirrel because whatever you're paying attention to wasn't engaging that dopaminergic uh, circuit. Mm. So anyway, once you start understanding that, you're like, oh, the real acceptance came when I went to see a psychiatrist who specialized in ADHD and wrote a book on ADHD. And he had ADHD. And in that book, he was writing about these experiences of people. And I was in New York at the time, and I was reading the book on the subway and just started crying because it was in that book that I saw my own story written down. Mm. And I, I was in tears because I went, to be frank, I'm like, oh, I'm not an asshole. Like, <laughs> there are thousands of people who have these same exact experiences, difficulties with lateness, with time, the experience of time, time management, this real inconsistency with motivation that kind of comes back and forth um, relationships, you know. My mother, it was then clear, like, of course, my mother, she had ADHD. I thought she was a crazy Romanian. Well, no, she was just crazy in the sense that she had ADHD, like me. She had serious problems with time management. She would show up like three hours late to things. And her attention, what I always complained about with her attention was she was either 
hyper-focused, which is an alternate state of ADHD. You can be hyper-focused on something when you're really interested in something or not that interested. And when her attention was on me, it was hyper-focused, which right. can be incredibly uncomfortable as a son. You're like, mom, like chill out. Like this is a little much, right? Um, so she was either hyper-focused or just no attention at all. In fact, I never called my mother by the name mom ever because she didn't respond to mom. I had to call her by her name, Monique. Her name was Monique. So I'd see Monique at eight. I'm like, Monique, phone call. And she'd be like, because she was working so hard as she was a single mother working. And that's where her attention was when she was working, you know? So, and, yeah. and Michael, just just on that, actually, do you, so I, I guess, I mean, this is going back quite a few years. So I, I, I mean, obviously a lot was le- less known. I, you know, it wasn't talked about. People didn't really know. So did your mum recognise any of this in herself, do you think? And therefore, did she recognise uh, it in no. you or she just no. thought this is the way I am? You know, I'm just a, an hundred percent not. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's exactly. I will tell you this in Ceausescu's Romania. You know, Ceausescu was the dictator of Romania for decades, and he was, you know, a, a horrific dictator. Everybody was an informant, um, or every other person was an informant. Uh, they were definitely not diagnosing ADHD. They were diagnosing traitors to the communist state. You know, and that's those are the options. You're either a communist or not. There was no like ADHD, you know, bipolar. <laughs> you know, you either nuts or you know a communist. And so um, that's why they left in 1960. That's a whole other fascinating story. How they left? They escaped. They they traded uh, the the keys to the house they had owned for four passports. Um, but there was definitely no diagnosis there. And you know, um, my mother. Uh, no, I, I think this, I, I wish he had survived long enough for us to have had this discussion, mm. you know, in the end though, you know, let's say she, at some point you're like, you know, Monique, I think you have ADHD. I, whether that would have actually changed anything, you know, I don't know, but, um, it is such a useful paradigm to look at your life. If, if it fits, um, it, if you have those symptoms, it takes such an onus off the experience of, of having those symptoms. And you're like, okay. And you also find a community of other people. And that allows you to manage the experience better, not be as hard on yourself. And here's the most important thing, curate ways of managing your life, exploring what works, what doesn't work and finding ways that work for you. Mm-hmm. And that leads me exactly to Get Motivated Buddies because that is exactly what the platform of Get Motivated Buddies is. It is a platform to experiment and discover processes of, of ways of working in your life that work for you and testing and experimenting. It's, it's like if you are a piece of software, which we can kind of say we are the way we think are a whole set of scripts you know, running and we test those scripts. We experiment with them. We hopefully can change them, expand on them and um, test them. And we do real world testing. We release them out. You know, I've been meditating for two years. I'm going to release it and see how I respond to this person yelling at me. Right. That's my new version, Michael (laughs) 1.8. And I'm like, wow, I didn't yell at the person this time. You know, that's an upgrade for my software. That is exactly what Get Motivated Buddies is. And the design of the platform is based on a set of principles um, that are proven both from psychology and from the theater. Um, one, One of the reasons for this is I believe that the theater is the most effective form of behavior change in existence that has been completely overlooked. It's been around for two to 3,000 years Longer, if you consider people dancing on a fire, yelling at each other, you know, telling stories, you know, so 10,000 years if you want um, the theater. So um, every night at 8 p.m. when there isn't COVID, a group of people will go to a space and change their behavior on cue. And they are highly motivated to do so to the extent that they will sacrifice most of the other things in their life that most other normal people would not sacrifice. Sometimes families, uh, money, you know, uh, stability, all that kind of stuff. And they will change their behavior on cue to do, they will do behaviors that they don't typically do in their normal life. Mm. 
So if Michael, you know, typically doesn't, um, I have to choose an example that isn't offensive, but you know, if Michael, let's just say, if Michael doesn't typically yell at his mother, although I did, but let's just say Michael doesn't typically yell at his mother and I'm playing Hamlet and I have the, you know, the mother confrontation scene. So Michael now has to do the behavior of yelling at his mother in, in that scene. So I have to do that behavior. And the script is simply a list of behaviors. That's it. He enters the room. He goes to his mother. He says these items. It's a set of behaviors. That's what a script is, right? And the entire process of the theater and of rehearsing is an actor trying to find the motivation to do those alien behaviors that are listed in that script. That is the entire purpose of a rehearsal. So I, Michael, the actor, has to find why am I doing these things. So in any acting class, in any rehearsal, in any uh, a class or rehearsal, acting comes down to only these two questions. And this is it. What are you doing? Which is a behavior. I'm, I'm entering the room. I'm, or I'm just, I'm crossing the stage. I'm pouring tea. I'm talking to my mother. I'm saying these words. The second question, why am I doing it? I'm tired. I want to get the tea. Uh, I'm thirsty. I adore her. It's uh, all these motivations, right? And the entire process of acting is the what is usually dictated by the script. The why, that's the process. That's what all of acting training is about, learning how to find those whys, those motivations. And the goal is to find the quote unquote hottest or most compelling motivations that physically arouse you the most, because it is that physical arousal, that emotional state that gets hottest, that is most compelling to an audience because our mirror neurons sync with that. And that's what gets us excited. And so likewise, you can take, you can extricate that process, those dynamics. And that's what get motivated by is, is, is get motivated buddies is the attempt to extricate those dynamics and make it scalable to everyone in the world to work together for people to find their own motivations to do behaviors, losing weight, working, you know, specific kinds of work, schoolwork, um, meditation. Uh, you know, any kind of behavior that is important to you, a, a set of behaviors that you struggle to do. And this is the drama of the human condition, which is we have these things that we aspire to do and be, I want to be rich. I want to own a company. I want to lose 20 pounds. I want to complete this course and get an A so I can get a great job. These are all the things we aspire to do in the story and the play of our life. And by the way, there's a there's a thing, we call it a play for a reason, but these are the characters we want to be, right? I want to be this version of Hamlet. Hamlet was a student, by the way. He was not good at his studies. He left, apparently. You know, he went back home. He actually, that was my story. He had to go back home to take care of the family, you know, similar situation. Um, you know, his father died, he, or he now has to uh, take care of things. And so I totally get it. Um and so we need a platform for us to rehearse the ways of how to find our motivation to do these things. And the way is simple. You need a structure, which is you have to create the scripts, and then you need a community. You need other people. Peter Brook, one of the famous directors, he's, he's English, uh, he said, in order to make the theater, you really only need two people, an actor and an audience member. And so that's the premise behind Get Motivated Buddies, which is you're an actor in your own life. You're a developer in your own life, a programmer. And then your buddy is that audience member. And likewise, you are that audience member for them. And you're simply observing each other and yourselves. You're, you learn to observe yourself and how things work for you, how they don't work. And then you observe each other and help each other notice where things are going on track and off track. It's a non-judgmental experience of observation. It's a, it's a mindful approach to self-development. And, and that's why I call it, there's a difference factor between self-improvement and self-development. Uh, one has a, one has a connotation that is positive and negative. Self-development just 
means you're developing, you're changing. Self-improvement means I'm trying to improve. One has a, a feeling of effort. And the goal of Get Motivated Buddies is to create a virtual environment online where you can develop without judgment, without effort, and that to find that ease in your life. And so this is a huge challenge because it flies in the face of a lot of our current conversation around how to move forward in our lives, which is you got to, you know, come on, do it. Just push through it. You can do it. Like you got this, you know, all this, like, you know, one more thing, this Navy SEAL mental toughness. But if you look at the Navy SEAL mental toughness, you know, I, I got out of a relationship many years ago and I, I had uh, trouble with it. Like I, I was obsessing about the experience and I read this Navy SEAL mental toughness book. Cause I'm like, yeah, they got it. But if you read the, even the Navy SEAL mental toughness, how do they get through their boot camps? They don't focus on, okay, I've got this 20 mile run to go and I'm soaking wet. They go, okay, I'm going to focus on this one foot and now the next foot. Mm -hmm. And then the next foot it's tiny, tiny, tiny. And it's those little win, 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 win. There isn't this long-term thing. So that's also how the site works. Okay, I'll stop there. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, listen, I mean, there's loads in here, Michael. And um, what I love about this is your journey. Essentially, it feels to me like you are exactly where you're meant to be right now. And, you know, the fact that you've created a startup business, which combines your experience and your passion, you know, both in terms of acting, the psychology, you know, wanting to help people, actually articulating it the way that you have makes a lot of sense. Now I understand your journey, but I can also see the benefit for people who want to be a better version of themselves because in business, it is tough. It is really tough. And I always say, say, you know, for me, there's a really simple equation for success because we overcomplicate things. And what I like about what you've described, it's actually quite simple, you know, the concept. So for me, it's about self-belief, really believing in yourself, having a clear purpose and goal. Now that could be the big picture. Or it could be, this is what I'm going to do today, or this is what I'm going to do in the next hour, but knowing what you're heading and why, you know, why you're doing it. And then taking action. And those actions can just be baby steps. And that's when you make things happen. That's when you get results. Um, you know, so I love the concept. I think it's really powerful, actually. And I can see how you've got to where you've got to after all these years with it as well, which is you, great. The three steps you met, belief, direction, a goal, and steps, that you, you've described the experience of an actor which is what do I believe in or what, what, what are my values? Right. And yeah. if you're playing a character, I mean, look, even if you're playing Hitler, you have to determine what are Hitler's values. Right. Mm -hmm. And you have to, because that's the person you're playing. So likewise, what do I believe? You know, one of the important things, even you have to drill down on this though. I feel when working with people, because we live in an environment where we are totally overwhelmed by information. You turn on your computer and you are bombarded mm. with incoming. And the major problem is that none of that information is vetted information. It's anything and everything. And as a result, you have to spend the majority of your day, in particular, if you're a CEO or somebody who's running something, vetting that information and deciding what is important, what is not, what do I believe is important and yeah. what is not. And the problem with that is the incentives in social media in particular, and in the ways which we get a lot of this information, the, the incentives are driven not by what is important to you and those values that are important to you, but they're driven by the values of what's important to that company. And we've seen this with the huge Facebook whistleblower that came out, you know, mm -hmm. and the point is that if you're waking up and you're looking at Facebook, you're looking at Instagram, you're looking at Twitter, you're looking at all this social media and even email, but let's stick with social media. You're getting information that is not what you have prioritized in your life as important to your beliefs and your values, but what an algorithm believes is in, what an algorithm believes is important to your life mm. and it is self-reinforcing. The reason why this is utterly crazy
crucial to this whole discussion is that every day, if you wake up and you engage with this material over time, you are going to be pulled further and further off course from your values and from those things that you believe in because they're, those things are designed to transform your beliefs into what the advertisers are selling. That's how it works, right? And therefore, your actions, what you're directing, like the direction you're taking, your goals shift as a result of that. And therefore, your actions shift as a result of that. Therefore, you find yourself taking actions throughout the day that are not in alignment with what your priorities are. And that is precisely why the major problem that we're facing today, and I believe, frankly, I believe this is the most important problem of our day, more important than anything, it is the most important problem, is that the misalignment of our daily actions with our beliefs, and that is precisely why people are lonelier after using Facebook, they are more depressed, and this is all just discussed in this recent Facebook uh, whistleblower thing, yeah. but this has been known for quite some time. And they are, they are less happy, and it leads to a decrease in longevity. You live less, and a decrease in well-being, which encompasses a whole set of, of these kinds of metrics. So the entire mission of my platform is to use technology to improve an individual's well-being by aligning their values with their actions. But exactly in the mechanism that you described, which is this nature of belief, whatever goal you have through the direction and these mm -hmm. tiny steps towards it. One, one other thing I'll add is that sometimes as we take steps towards our goals, the experience of that is different than what we imagined. And of course it is because our imagination of what that is, we aren't there yet. So we don't actually know what it is. So however we think we're, whatever we think life is like, if we have a million dollars in the bank, is going to be very different when we actually have a million dollars in the bank. And therefore, we're never sure if we've actually met that goal or is this the goal we actually wanted? Because what we're imagining is not who we are. We're imagining our past, not our future, right? So it's very important to have a system in place to evaluate where we're at at every moment and check in with how we're feeling and notice whether our identity, our identity is changing and our priorities, because maybe it's like, as I work towards a million dollars in the bank, maybe I'm like, this isn't feeling so good. I'm getting, getting to $500,000 in the bank has completely burnt me out. And I've lost my wife and my family. Like maybe a million isn't worth it. Right. And so it's, it's important as we take these tiny steps that we're mindfully evaluating, and I believe it's best with others, um, how things are going. Yeah. And, and if we are on the track, we want to be on. Yeah, and, and that's absolutely right, because I, I'm a massive believer in role models, in mentors, coaches, you know, and essentially, you know, buddies, buddies to you know people you can get uh, great counsel from, get inspiration from, someone that's going to call you out and say, hey, come on, you're not really doing what you what you should be doing. And, you know, to actually create an app that can support all of that is is fantastic. Who do you think, who are your target clients? Who are the people that benefit most from this? Because I, I can see how it would have a broad reach. But yeah. if you were to nail it down, Michael, who yeah. this is for, who was who the app for, do you think? So what yeah, we're doing, the, the, the platform is actually a marketplace. So it's a marketplace where you can find behavioral plans for all different kinds of areas in your life. Um, so like if you go to Udemy, you can find all these courses on your Coursera, you can find all these courses to learn different things. So on Get Motivated Buddies, you know, what we're working towards is building this, you know, massive marketplace of behavioral plans, you know, meditation, uh, education, and partnering with different organizations. So for example, uh, Blue Zones, which is a diet to help you live longer. So you can do a quote unquote Blue Zones challenge for 30 days with other people. So we're going to be targeting niche audiences, starting very niche step by step because we're bringing together different communities, just like Reddit or something like that. So we're starting with longevity um, and people who have chronic pain disorders of sorts so they can create behavioral plans and work mm. together um, really uh, 
longevity, um, chronic disease management, that kind of stuff. But also here are the, these are the two groups of all the people who have signed up because over 15,000 people have, have signed up. So we have, you know, a, a lot of information. The vast majority who have signed up as it is now are women 18 to 35 who are looking to lose weight and get fit. Yeah. And those are two slightly different things. And the next largest group are college students who are looking for study partners to help them follow through to complete their courses, because only 90% of students who are online complete their online courses, most drop out. Mm. And then when it comes to fitness, 80% of people who join a gym at the beginning of the year, or 80% of people who join a fitness app drop out in the first few weeks. And this we know. So the, the purpose of the platform is to help these people follow through. But there are so many different uh, communities that can benefit from this kind of help sustaining behavior change, but we're going to be focusing very niche on different communities bit by bit and testing each one. Yeah, which I think is smart because the, the the thing is, when you have a concept that could go very broad, the danger is you try and do everything. And when you're a startup, you do have to niche down. Um, yeah. And I think you're absolutely right and, and prove the concept and then grow from there. You know, And I think that's so important as, as an entrepreneur to, to not get seduced by the shiny penny, which yeah. with, your, with, with the ADHD that you have as well is even more of a a, a potential um, challenge, shall we say, because I think the average entrepreneur suffers with this anyway, you know, of, oh, I've got a great idea and we're, we're doing this, but no, let's everyone over here now, you know, and this happens in the entrepreneurial world a lot. But the key is to stay focused get some results, prove the concept, yeah. and then, okay, expand from there, but don't get so distracted that then you, you achieve nothing, you know? And that, this that's is the hundred percent. Uh, I mean, the, the, the great thing is, um, you know, I have validated every, I mean, I have paying users. I've had people on this. I have a beta platform out. People have been using it for a very long time, very successfully, and they're passionately committed. In fact, I have a lot of people from England um, on there. Um, and so everything really is validated, proven out. Um, I'm, I'm at a point right now, that, which is, I believe, and I have some extraordinary advisors. I have uh, one of the co-founders of the design firm, IDEO, who teaches uh, designing for health at Stanford. I have uh, one of, he's a former technology and economics advisor to the Obama White House. His name is Dipayan Ghosh. Uh, he runs the Platform Accountability Project at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, and he wrote this book called Terms of Disservice, How Silicon Valley is Destructive by Design. <laughs> and then I have uh, Serge Gonzalez, who is the uh, former director of innovation at eBay. Um, and then I have all these other people who, who they recognize the, the real value in this mission and the concept, but I'm building a marketplace. And as a marketplace, the question, I think you're absolutely right. Okay. Are we building, building a marketplace for fitness or building a marketplace for education? Are we building a marketplace? And one of the powers of the platform is that there are four categories, health and fitness, work, learn, which stands for education and life, which is kind of a catch-all for things like meditation or spend time with family, anything like that. Mm -hmm. And you can have a buddy in each one of those categories. That's one of the powers, which is you are not siloed into, oh, I'm health and fitness. I'm this. You view yourself holistically. And that is precisely one of the differentiating factors of this platform and why it's effective. Therefore, it's the challenge as well which is when you're creating this marketplace to, to appeal to those four, each, each user, each person is actually four users and has four buddies. Then that buddy has four buddies. So it's this kind of virtuous network of, of people. Um, so in building the marketplace, yes, it's a huge challenge. Okay. Am I, you can't do all I'm creating partnerships with, uh, some really phenomenal people, but in targeting the, the partnerships I'm doing and building out the marketplace and targeting the audiences that will appeal to those, uh, partners. Um, yes, it has to be slow, methodical testing each niche audience. Uh, and, and we're starting to do that. I, and the great thing is because I have, you know, these thousands of profiles and these are full on profiles where I know these people, like I have great information of how to move forward with it. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, listen, look at some of the some of the absolute, you know, amazing businesses today. You know, look at Airbnb. Airbnb started with, you know, people renting out a, a, their sofa, essentially, and people needing somewhere to stay for cheap. And look at it now as a global platform that has totally transformed the, you know, the travel and hospitality sector. So, you know, I think the potential's huge, but you're absolutely right. Focus what you're doing now and use the data and the testing to be able to move forward. Um, and I think you've got something I, really great here. I I love what you said that you mentioned Airbnb because what Airbnb does is it it said it noticed a marketplace that wasn't being used and what was that marketplace identical to Uber Airbnb said oh people have homes and they they have parts of their homes that they aren't using the sofa mm-hmm. right that space that can be monetized right? Uber said, oh, people own cars and they have a space in their cars that aren't being used that can be monetized. And now it's it's absolutely fascinating because they're both connected to journey. Airbnb, you can use that. If I'm going on a journey, I can use that your space as part of my journey. Uber, I'm going on a journey. I can use your space as part of that journey. Same thing. Get motivated, buddies. I actually, when I started this whole thing, it's identical. We have space in our lives as we go on our own journeys, self-development, and we we have this unused space or it's occupied by either unhelpful people or they're just empty. This actually is a new form of relationship. It is what we would call an, an accountability partner. I tend not to use that term because most people don't use that term. It's mainly used in either business, like kind of niche business conversations or in Bible study. Yeah. But essentially it's an accountability partner. Um, but I'm also trying to redefine it specifically. It's it really what it is. It's a, it's a friend in the true sense of the word. I didn't use friend because Facebook has co-opted that. Mm-hmm. And your Facebook friends, are they really your friends? Like, Will you borrow money from them? Will they lend money? Will they drive you to the airport? That kind of stuff. It's like, it's kind of lost meaning, right? Really, this is the uh, the original friend, which is somebody who is helping you be th- the best version of you and is there for you and with you through the difficult times, you know, and not. And friends come and go. Like the point on the platform is maybe this buddy isn't working for you. You can find a new one. And for you can have a health and fitness buddy and a work buddy. And the point is to align people with their shared values and what they're working towards. But that's the point. Along we're filling this space in your life with other people and you're both going on these shared journeys together and we're monetizing it as a subscription-based service, just like Airbnb, like you pay for this, right? So um, that's the current model. I, one thing I want to add about the business model, because I think this is important, which is this is also a creator marketplace. So the point is that th- this is actually a really important point I want to mention, because I know we're going a bit long here, but the, the, the premise here is that just having people match up is not a successful methodology. I've matched thousands of people. I took the name Get Motivated Buddies from a subreddit called Get Motivated Buddies. And I'm now the moderator of that subreddit. There's over 100,000 people in there. And those are all people looking for accountability partners. I have matched thousands of those through an algorithm that I had made. Um, Just matching people fails, right? Why? Because there is no structure. There is no plan in place. There's no script. There's nothing for them. There's nothing specific for them to do. As a result, people, everybody flakes out within a few days to two weeks. Get Motivated Buddies gives you a structure and other people. You have to have both. You can't just have structure because people drop out. You can't just have buddies because people drop out. You have to have both. The goal and what we've been doing is partnering with experts in different areas who can provide these behavioral plans that people can do. And as a result, for these successful plans and these successful challenges that the partners offer, they get part of the revenue. It's a revenue share model. So everybody wins. If you wrote a book uh, called The 30-Day Keto Diet, right? Well, who's going to read that book? I'll tell you. Not many people because we don't read anymore, right? And those who do read, they're not going to do it because nobody is good at translating 
this information into daily action. It's very difficult. Not many people are good at writing about how to do daily action. So then what we do is we go, hey, instead of doing the 30-day keto book and forcing people to buy the book and read it, why not turn that into a 30-day keto diet challenge that all the people, you have 200,000 people on your Facebook page, why not say, hey, come join this 30-day keto diet challenge for $20. They come to get motivated buddies. They find all the other people who are interested in it. They start doing it right away, which is what they wanted to do, which is why they followed your Facebook page, right? You get to moderate that, actually engage with them, and then they've done it successfully or not, and then you can actually roll them into the next challenge, the 60-day challenge or the 14-day challenge or the, the hardcore 14-day uh, challenge, uh, and, and there's constant revenue share there for everybody. So everybody wins. The people who want to do it have the opportunity to take action. And the people providing the content are actually are earning money and giving actionable content to people. Last thing I just want to add about this, because this is, this is a new way of talking about this that I think is very important, which is if you go onto Facebook or Twitter, this is all passive content. You look at it, you swipe, you comment, it's text, it's video, it's images, it's all passive. We passively consume it and we do it for 45 hours a day. And these are behaviors, swiping, liking, commenting that end up leading to loneliness and depression because in the, in the sphere of human existence, we haven't evolved to do these things. And when we die, we're not going to wish we had liked two more posts, right? And so on Get Motivated Buddies, we are creating something called actionable content. And this is content you take action on. So the content you provide is read, write, work, study, work out, whatever it is. What is the action that the user does? Read, write, study, work out. And what is the result of that? You're making meaningful choices in your life. You're creating meaningful relationships with other around these things. And you're getting better. You're building your competence at these things. And when you die, you're like, man, I'm, I lived two years longer because I worked out for those three days, you know, you know, back you know, 40 years ago because of get motivated by these. In other words, it is something you will have wanted to do. Um, and the difference in terms of the business perspective is instead on, on Facebook, you have, to, if, if you're a business on Facebook or Twitter and all the social media, you're trying to promote your business. You have to spend thousands of dollars or make new posts every single day, all the time to capture people's attention over and over and over and over again, because that is precisely the, revenue model for Facebook. And it is utterly exhausting. And there's a reason why we use the word, they use the word conversions on in social media. And there's only one other area in life where that word is used. Religion, right? It's like we're converting people. And the conversion rates in social media are, they're like, it's 1%, it's 2%, it's 3%. This is great. Okay, well, it's kind of like religion. It's like I would love to compare like conversion rates between Mormons and like online social media or something. <laughs> and the, the reason that social that conversion rate is, is like that is because you're you have to change people's belief over and over and over again. And unlike on Get Motivated Buddies, you are preaching to the people who already believe they want to do the keto diet and you're giving them the tools to do it. You don't have to convert people. So that's kind of the mark, the, the marketplace dynamic I'm creating here. Um, and, and I'm very excited about it because we're aligning in, we're aligning incentives between businesses who want to help people and the people who want to do those things. And so we're just aligning those incentives. Perfect. Now, it's, it's a really fascinating business model, Michael, and I really like how it brings all of your kind of background into this, you know, this this uh, proposition, which is helping people. And it's a win win, as you say. So that is fantastic. Um, listen, we could talk for God hours and hours. I think um, we may have to do a follow up, Michael, as the business progresses, you know, see how things turn out. But in all of your sort of, you know, the your experience of acting and that, do you miss the acting, actually, by the way? I know you are still acting, but you're focusing mainly mainly on the business side of things. Do you miss that world or, or not? Well, so much? A, because you are always presenting yourself to the world, aren't you? I yeah. guess really. It's well, yeah. I mean, that's actually a point I make to people. It's like, you know, everybody's acting all the time. You behave differently with your family than you do with your friends, than you do in a business meeting where we have the, all these selves that we're in masks that we're constantly changing. All of that said, um, 
yeah, I, I miss the, the act of acting. I miss acting. Like, like horrifically, I still consider myself an actor. It's, it's just, you, you, that's, if, if that's who you are, that's who you are. It's uh, acting is a form of self investigation um, and an awareness of how you relate to others. It's, 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 it's a love of language. It's a love of text. It's a love of translating language into behavior. It's, it's, it's life. Acting is life. Acting is life. I don't know if you've seen Ted Lasso where there's the, you know, there's a character. If you've seen Ted Lasso. He's this uh, character. He's from Latin America. He plays soccer and he's like, soccer is life. Yeah. I love <laughs> soccer is life. And it's like acting, acting is life. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. So Michael, can you think of the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Best piece of advice comes from my advisor, uh, which is to evaluate your incoming into return by return on investment or, or evaluate what you're doing and, and your priorities on what is the return on investment. And that doesn't necessarily mean money. It can be whatever is important to you. Values, it can be, am I spending time with my family? It can be money-based, uh, but that, that's been one of the most helpful information. Like, okay, stop. What is the return on investment on what I'm doing? Is this worth it? What is the value in this? That's been an incredibly helpful way to look at managing all of the priorities in my life. Perfect. I love that. I might nick that one. <laughs> I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.